0: I want to talk to you tonight about baptism. I don't want us to look at this topic as merely another abstract doctrine. I want us to look at it as a doctrine, but not a doctrine in the way that we have come to think of doctrine. In the modern church, we think of doctrine as a rag to to, to play tug-of-war over. I believe this, you believe that. We don't actually believe that the Spirit will lead and guide us into all truth. And that when, the, when truth is spoken, that the Spirit will bear witness with our spirits. That there will be a resonance in the Holy Ghost that says, this is the truth. But I do still believe that. And I don't want to, teach, I don't want to talk about this because I think that one way is right and another way is wrong. I want to talk about this because I think one way can change your life and the other way may leave you less changed than God intended. I want to remind you of Paul's words in Romans. We quote it often. Romans 2, he says to the church, he says, You, I praise you that you believed from the heart and you became obedient to that form of doctrine to which you were committed. It's important that we notice that he does not say that doctrine was committed to the people, but he says the people were committed to a form of doctrine. We're mindful of of, of Romans 12, a few chapters later, where he says to the church, Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. We all know what a form is, right? In Israel, one of our brothers is a specialist in in casting and molding. Brother Norman is a specialist, and he's been hired on at a company. And what he does all day long is he builds wax molds. He oversees the construction of wax molds. So they build this mold out of a very hard kind of wax. And when the mold is right, they pour porcelain into this wax. And when the porcelain hardens, they break away the wax. And then they pour aluminum into the porcelain. So one mold is for creating another mold, finally to get to the metal. They they use the porcelain mold and they pour the the molten aluminum into the porcelain mold. And when the aluminum is set, they break away the porcelain. One mold after another after another to forge something, to mold something, to mold metal in a certain shape or likeness. That's how you are formed. You have to be soft enough to be conformed to God's image. And so I want to ask you, based on these scriptures, what is the mold that defines, that makes up, what what is the substance that makes up the mold that we're supposed to be poured into? We know that we're supposed to be conformed to the image of His Son. What does conformed mean? Formed with, right? Formed by, changed into the image of God's Son. So we're supposed to be poured into a mold. We're supposed to be shaped into something. Is that mold made of porcelain that we're poured into? Is that mold made of wax? Is that mold made of aluminum? So what is our mold made of? I praise you that you became obedient to that form of doctrine to which you were committed. Is our mold wax? Porcelain? What is it? It's the doctrine. It's the word. It's the truth. If we get the truth right and we pour our lives into this shape of Jesus' corporate image, then we come out looking like the body of Christ. But if there is some big gap in that porcelain, then all the hot metal bulges out. And we have this church with these terrible deformities, this bulge of a tumor over here, and this void over there, and this vacancy and this inadequacy, maybe fingers coming out over here, and arms in the wrong places. Doctrine is important because it's what we're formed by. We pour our lives into the form of a truth. We better be really sure that we get that form right. Isn't that true? Thank you, Jesus. So if you listen to me tonight, I don't want it to be because of my brain or your brain. I want it to be because you see a body. You see a church. And you say, this is starting to look a little bit, Like what I thought the body of Christ was supposed to resemble. If you like the fruit, then listen to the form. If you like the image of Christ, then listen to the form. If you like what you see in the church that has been formed and shaped by this truth, then listen to the truth, listen to the doctrine. So, can we talk about baptism tonight? How old is baptism, brothers and sisters? That's right. What's the earliest baptism we're told about in the Bible? The Red Sea. Sea. That's right. They didn't even get wet. (laughs) We're told in 1 Corinthians 10 that the people of God went through things that were merely types and shadows, examples for us. And we're told that they were baptized. What does it say? Does it say that they were baptized into the Red Sea? It says that they were baptized into Moses through the cloud and through the sea. How were they baptized into Moses through the cloud and through the sea? We're told that on the night Pharaoh finally got sick and tired of him and told him they could leave, Moses made a decision that probably scared all the people. The Bible specifically tells us that he did not lead them on the shortest, most direct path through the land of the Philistines. There was a highway there. He didn't have to go to the Red Sea, except that he did because God told him to. They were trying to get to the wilderness. And Moses walked right past the road sign that said, two miles to the wilderness, this way. And he said, no, we're, we're going to the ocean. We're going to, go, we're going to get to the wilderness through the ocean. And right then and there, the people are put to the test. Can they trust that this man knows how to hear from God? Moses, when he writes the story, says, God did not lead them through the direct route, but he led them on a circuitous route through the Red Sea. It says that they all got there on the shores of the Red Sea, and they can hear that Pharaoh has has changed his mind yet again. Pharaoh and all his army, the most powerful military in the world, is beating down, chasing after them. The jingle and clamor of chariots. The sound of swords and spears. The clamor and talk of soldiers. Pounding down after this group of terrified slaves. And Moses took this group of over a million people. He took them to the shores of the Red Sea simply because he didn't have confidence in anything but the leading of the Spirit. He said, if the cloud goes left, I'm going left. If the cloud goes right, I'm going right. If the cloud spins in circles for 40 years, I'm spinning in circles for 40 years. But I don't have the presumption to do anything without the cloud. I told the Lord, unless your presence goes with us, don't even send us. Because I'm not going anywhere, God, that you're not leading. But the people didn't initially have this relationship with God. They didn't enjoy this total faith and confidence and right standing with God that Moses had. But they had him. He had God, but they had him. And they had to make make a choice about whether they were gonna be immersed in the obedience to this man. They were baptized into Moses through the cloud and through the sea. And so on that first night it says that the pillar of cloud circled around the Egyptians I mean around the Israelites excuse me and it went between them and Egypt. And on the Egypt side of the cloud it was darkness. And on the Israel side of the cloud it was brightness. And the cloud just kind of pushed them toward the sea and said, you're going to to trust me. Stand still and see the salvation of God. I want to direct your attention to an important passage right now that is not taken from the Old Testament, but we're going to bounce back to the Old Testament here momentarily. 1 Peter 3.21. I want you to listen carefully. First of all, let me ask you, how many lords are there? how many faiths are there how many baptisms are there how many bodies are there one Lord one faith one baptism one God and father of all who is over all and in you all there are not two there are not three there is one this one baptism is twofold the first immersion is the immersion of your flesh as a pledge to stay under the death of Christ in a state of constant submission and denial. Amen. And the second part of the same baptism, the second phase of immersion is the immersion of your spiritual man, your soul and your spirit into the Holy Ghost. So God baptizes you in the flesh and he baptizes you in the spirit, but it's the same baptism. When he overcomes and overwhelms your spiritual man, your soul, oh, you're baptized in the Holy Ghost, and you begin to speak in other tongues as the Spirit of God gives utterance. This is called a baptism of fire. And this also corresponds to what happens in the flesh when your flesh is overwhelmed and completely submerged. But in 1 Peter 3, beginning in verse 18, he tells us that in the days of Noah, eight souls were brought safely through water. Can everybody say through water? water. So whatever he's talking about here is water. Water baptism. Eight souls were brought safely through water. Then Peter says, corresponding to that, to the Noahic flood and judgment, baptism now saves you. Now, there may be a lot of people who are going to tell you that baptism is, occurs after salvation or because of salvation. It is an outward sign of an inward change. I've been told a thousand times if I've been told once. But he tells us that baptism is integral to our salvation. Do I think therefore that whoever we can get in water is automatically saved? Let's imagine that I am in Africa as I was a few weeks ago and I meet a native man of the Zulu tribe doesn't speak a word of English and we're walking along the ocean and I'm saying how you doing he says ah, blah, blah, blah. and I say uh, yeah I'm a Christian and I say, I, I really think you need to accept Christ. And Peter said, if you're baptized, then you're saved. And so while we're walking along, I see a wave coming and I push him in. <laughs> oh, he goes under, comes up, and I say, Baptism now saves you, buddy. <laughs> and he goes, Yeah, I know. It's great, isn't it? Be filled with joy. You're saved. Is that how baptism saves us? No. Something that is done without knowledge may as well not have been done. If my kids go in the backyard and they parrot my uh, words at the last wedding and they can quote the vows correctly to each other and pronounce each other married at 5, 4, and 6, are they in fact married? The words don't make them married. They have no meaning. They have no revel- relevance tied to what they're doing because it, they don't understand it. Just as surely as judgment is according to knowledge, so also do do the acts of salvation and the steps of salvation have to correlate to a meaning and a purpose in our own hearts and minds. You remember that before the eunuch could be baptized, he had to understand. He's riding in the chariot, and Philip says, do you understand what you're doing? He says, how can I unless a man explain it to me? Philip didn't just pull him down into the water and say, okay, you're good to go. That's what... Constantine did with his army. He marched them through the river and told them they were all Christians. Were they Christians when they came out the other side even though they were dripping? Huh? So when Peter says baptism now saves you, we have to understand that what he's saying is baptism done in a biblical way with a biblical understanding is somehow part of your salvation. And I ask you, if someone gets baptized without understanding Is that any better than just getting wet in the bathtub? No, it's not. How does baptism affect your salvation? I thought Jesus said in John 17, verse 3, that it was a relationship with your Lord and Savior that saved you. Didn't he say, this is eternal life? Somebody finish it for me, that they may... Jesus said, this is eternal life. This is salvation, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. So salvation, Jesus says, is a relationship. Peter says, baptism saves us. Oh, what do we do? Who's right? I guess we'll give up baptism and stick with Jesus. Oh, wait a minute. Jesus said in John 10 that the scripture cannot be broken. So we need to understand this. If, if Jesus says that a relationship with God is what gives us eternal life, and Peter says baptism saves us, oh, well, then baptism must have some integral part in our relationship with God. Think about baptism like your wedding. Your wedding is not the entirety of your marriage, but you can't have an authentic marriage without a wedding. Do you follow me? You cannot have a biblical marriage without a wedding. But when you stand at the altar and you say, I do, if you then walk away and live, I don't, your wedding just becomes a joke, right? In the same way, we can treat baptism like a wedding that we attend or that we make a pledge in and then we never live. And we can say to the Lord, okay, if I just get baptized, then I'll, my salvation will be all set. No, it will not. Your salvation is your relationship with Jesus. Now listen to this. The wedding vows bind you to the marriage. Baptism binds you to the relationship that saves you. Baptism binds you to the relationship that saves you. It is the wedding vow to the Lord where you make a pledge. Peter says in this passage, he says... Baptism now saves you and then he qualifies it. He puts a comma and he says, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. So baptism is when you make a pledge to God. Baptism is a vow. If you make a vow and then you break a vow, the vow doesn't save you. But if you want to have a lifelong relationship, then you better seal it with a pledge. Get baptized in the name of Jesus. Baptism binds you to the relationship that saves you. If you try to have a saving relationship with Jesus, but you're unwilling to make that pledge at baptism, you are like a bride who refuses to go to the altar, who balks and is unwilling to make a lifelong commitment at the altar of Jesus' sacrifice. Baptism binds you to the relationship that saves you. Can anyone be saved apart from baptism? Well, of course, because salvation is a relationship. And when that relationship is authentic and genuine, whatever hasn't come is credited until such time as it can be understood until it can come. Baptism binds you to the relationship that saves you. So you cannot separate it from salvation any more than you can separate a wedding vow from a marriage. And you cannot isolate it from the relationship any more than you can separate the life after the marriage from the wedding vow that you made that night. So it doesn't save you apart from a relationship. It saves you by keeping you in the relationship. There are some, even Pentecostals, who put so much emphasis on baptism that they forget that it is a pledge that holds you to a relationship. And so they walk away from the relationship and they leave their spiritual husband at the altar because, after all, they got the wedding vow. They don't have to be his bride. They don't have to actually love him and have a saving relationship with him because they already ticked that box when they were baptized appropriately. Baptism is only as good as the relationship that follows. The pledge is only as good as the life that corresponds to it. If you make the pledge and you don't keep the pledge, Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, don't make a vow to the Lord hastily and then say you made a mistake. It's better not to vow at all, he says, than to make a vow you intend to break. Baptism is serious. But listen again to what he says. He says, "Corresponding." He says in the days of Noah eight souls were brought safely through water corresponding to that baptism now saves you. But in the days of Noah were the waters that lifted the ark were those good waters? Or were those judgment waters? Were those waters of blessing? Were those waters of of encouragement? Those were waters of judgment. Those waters... Brought death and condemnation on every living thing. They were the judgment of God on the earth. So, how are the baptism waters similar to the flood waters? Because that's what Peter said. In the days of Noah, eight souls were brought safely through water, and corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. So, somehow, my baptism waters are like the floodwaters. But the floodwaters killed something. They brought judgment on the whole earth. You see, every single one of us has a sin nature inside of us. We are rebels against God. In our independence, we have chosen the tree of knowledge. But the world, through, his, through its wisdom, did not come to know God We have rejected his law. We have abandoned his covenant. Our our hands are stained with sin and bloodshed. There is evil in the heart of every human being. And when the Lord gave us the law, he gave it to reveal our inability to obey it apart from grace. So... All it showed was how exceedingly sinful sin really was. How powerful sin really was. And he said, You can't keep the law. And I told you from the beginning that if you sin, you're going to bring death into this world. And so we did. Through our rebellion against God, we opened the world to evil, to violence to spiritual forces of wickedness. Until when Jesus came, he called Satan the ruler of this world. John called the devil the god of this world. The prince of this age, he's called Paul, Jesus, John. And here we are, slaves to sin, captives to the power of a sin that we partook of, but then it took control of us. We didn't have the power to stop. And we set ourselves on a course that was going to end in eternal separation from God. The law of God that was intended to keep us from evil, the law of God that was intended for our good, we ran at cross purposes to that law. And we set in motion a judgment that we could never stop. Hell was the destination Of every living person and what is hell except a place separated from love a place where selfishness takes you beyond the reach of love to ever be redeemed again where you just are released to go the way of your own carnal selfish rotten flesh and we had this debt to pay this debt to justice this debt of eternal judgment to pay And the Lord said through the law, he says, you can't pay this debt, but I want you to remind yourself and I want you to offer animal sacrifices so that you remember that though they are of far lesser life value, I want you to remember that sin brings death. I want you to feel when you put that turtle dove to death, I want you to feel the pain that your sin is bringing into the world. Turtle doves didn't save anybody's soul. The blood of goats and lambs didn't cleanse anybody's sin, but it kept this awareness inside of humanity that we deserve death and that we are racing headlong toward eternal death. How can we atone? How can we cover ourselves? How can we be exonerated before justice? How can we evade this bullet that has already been fired when we pulled the trigger through our decisions? We can't. If we offered ourselves as a sacrifice, that is unacceptable because we are guilty. The guilty cannot atone for the guilty. They are a blemished sacrifice. Remember, he says, do not bring me your blind sheep, your lame calves. The guilty cannot atone for the guilty. God, what do we do? How do we bridge this gap? How do we overcome this condemnation, how do we come back into a relationship with God? How do we get back to what mankind had in the garden before he was deceived? How do we begin to communicate with our creator in the spirit of the day? How do we bring these tendencies under dominion? How do we avoid this bullet of judgment that is already fired That time is racing us toward every hour, every second, every day. Amen. And the God who gave us the law, the God who in his providence gave us the law, said, I am going to come down. I am going to robe myself. I'm going to become a man. In my flesh, I'm going to be just like you. But the God who is spirit, he said, I'm going to get inside of a weak and crying little baby. And that baby will be a man. But inside that baby will be the God who is spirit. I'm going to robe myself in your weakness. I'm going to partake of all your temptations. I'm going to face all your afflictions. I'm going to be a normal man in this awful normal world. But I am not going to break my relationship with God. I am going to walk pure. I'm going to walk honest. I'm going to love my neighbor. I'm going to show mercy and justice and kindness. And so in the dry hills of Judea about 2,000 years ago, God Almighty hid himself in the weakness of a normal baby. Crying, infant, reaching for its mother in this world of violence. And he grows up and he lives a sinless life. He does not partake of Adam's sin because his father is, the, is God. But he grows up in this world. He grows up in this born of a woman, born under the law. Amen. And the day comes when all the forces of violence say, oh, we got to snuff this guy out. Oh, we got to put this guy to death. He's a troublemaker. Thank you, Jesus. He's the only sinless man. He's the only man who is truly justified before God. He's the only man who can stand before justice with with no condemnation. So Yeshua is taken from Gethsemane to the courts of Caiaphas. There he is questioned. There he is accused of blasphemy. He is beaten and imprisoned. And the next morning he is taken to the courts of Herod, to the courts of Pharaoh, I mean to the courts of of, of Herod, to the courts of Pilate. Pilate doesn't want to have anything to do with it. He knows it's a religious conflict. But they take this only example of purity, this only example of innocence, this only man who never had a single person who could legitimately accuse him of cruelty. And they nail him to a tree. Every other man that's ever died was a child of Adam. And the inheritance of sin pulsed in his veins. And therefore, though he died unjustly in a sense, he was reaping what his father had sown. Every other man was an heir of Adam and therefore an heir of Adam's judgment. But this man was without sin. This man was without falsehood. This man was without violence. He said, turn the other cheek. He said, forgive. He said, love your neighbor and love your enemies. He showed mercy to the prostitutes and tax collectors. He showed compassion to a thief who was dying justly on a cross beside him. And his last words from the cross were looking for others, were looking after their well-being, forgiving those who were torturing him. He was the first man who Satan had put to death, whom Satan had no hold on. And so when they put this man to death, when the Roman centurion pierces his side, when he's condemned to death, something happens in the universe. Something happens in the heavens. Something begins to shake and rattle in the whole cosmos. Satan has just taken the life of a child of God when that child never came under Satan's dominion through sin. And so this dark shroud of gloom and separation that hung like a veil over the whole earth separating the world from the beauty and purity and light of God. This shroud is ripped and torn asunder. It says that the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. Something happened when Satan did something he, didn't, he shouldn't have done. He took a life that he had no right to take perhaps the first life that he had no right to take. And when he did, his kingdom was undermined with that act. And a puncture emerged in the canopy. And then that God who had lived inside the man Christ Jesus called him out of that grave. (laughs) Amen. Three days after he had been put in there, three days after the devil thought he'd defeated love the last time the angel rolled the stone away and life pulsed back through that corpse. And Jesus walked out. Thousands of people saw him. People fell down, fainted. They, they, they knelt in disbelief. But here, here he came, this man of righteousness. And he said, if you'll get inside of me, you'll get into the place where Satan has no hold. You'll get into the place where justice can't condemn you. You'll get into the place where the bullet will go right past you. You'll get into the place where the gates of hell cannot prevail and where the gates of heaven swing open if you'll just get inside of me. And so it becomes incumbent upon us not, to, not just to accept the facts about what Jesus did, but to understand that Jesus established a kingdom, that Jesus became a corporate body, a place that he called the ecclesia, the called out ones. Those who are called out of the kingdoms of darkness and sin into the kingdom of the son of his love. Amen. And he said this through his apostle Paul. He said, there is now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus is not just somebody who lived a long time ago, He is a corporate body. Yeshua, this place of salvation, Yeshua means Yahweh becomes salvation. And this place of salvation is a place that you can get inside of. His body is like the ark. His body, His people are like the temple. And you can come out of those kingdoms where condemnation still applies and you can get into the secret place of the Most High where there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But how can you do that? Through a pledge. Baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. As an autonomous, isolate individual, there's no salvation offered to you. You're condemned. You are condemned already. But the salvation that he offers to you is for you to renounce and abandon your own claims as a God, as a little demiurge, as a little idol, as a little... God-man. But if you will abandon your claims and come into him and receive his identity, then you can enjoy the freedoms, the powers, the salvation that belong to the only sinless man. If you were a criminal, not that there would ever be any in this room, but if you were a criminal, let's say a really bad guy. I'm going to pick on you tonight, Levi. Let's say Levi was a really bad guy and he had committed all kinds of crimes, and the law, which represents justice, is after Levi. What would they do? They would put Levi's picture everywhere. He'd be in the newspaper, he'd be on the television. He'd be posted in the, uh, the post office. Wanted, Levi, if you see this guy, call the authorities, right? And what would Levi do if he was trying to escape the law? If he was trying to escape the judgment that his crimes deserved, what would he do? Well, you would say that he would hide, but if he wanted to live a a quasi-normal life, what would he do? He would change his identity. He would change his identity. He would change everything about him that identified him as the condemned man. He would change his look. He would change his name. He would change his relationships. He would change everything about him. And if he did that, he might temporarily escape the justice that he deserved. But it would be unlawful. His change of identity would just be a fraud. It would just be another crime, wouldn't it? It would just be stealing somebody's identity. Isn't that one of the biggest crimes in the world today? Identity theft. Why why is identity theft so popular? Because people are trying to change. They're trying to escape the judgment that is due them. They ruin their old life. And they'll pay thousands and thousands of dollars to steal somebody else's name. And enjoy the right standing with the law that some innocent person has. And salvation is a little bit like that. Eternity is written in the hearts of man. We know that we are under judgment. We know what we deserve. That we're not good people. And we fear the wrath of God. The wrath of his Elohimic system. Of his angels. Of his law. And we want to change. And Jesus doesn't offer you identity theft but he does offer you identity change. He says, if you will willingly submit to me, I will change the way you look. I will change the way you feel. I will change you at your very core. I will put my own spirit inside of you so that you can become part of me, so that your claim to be part of of God will be legitimate. And he says, I will change your name if you will lose yourself if you will renounce your autonomy and we say no 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 Jesus let me look the same let me act the same let me hang out with the same people let me be my own man with my own image and my own identity let me be an individual Christian but please Lord Consider me saved when the time comes. But he's not saving you from his own heart of love. He's saving you from the law of justice. And he says, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am meek and lowly in heart. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you want to stay an autonomous individual, you should never get baptized. But if you want your life to be gone and for you to become hidden with Christ in God, then you ought to get baptized. What do you think Paul meant when he said that his life was hidden? Hidden with Christ in God. That means people couldn't find Paul. Where's that smart guy? Where's that Pharisee who knew the law so well? Where's that horse riding zealot who we used to hang out with? Anybody seen Paul and they walk right by Paul because they just don't see him? Why don't they see him? Because he's changed. He's taken on the identity of someone that is so different. People don't recognize him. But Christians today, they wanna stay in their sin They want to stay in their autonomy. They want to keep their rotten character. And they just want God to change their label. But he says, there is now therefore no condemnation of those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. God doesn't want to change your label. He wants to change your heart. He wants to give you a heart of flesh where you once had a heart of stone. He wants to change your attitude. He wants to change your spirit. He wants to convert you from a child of flesh to a child of God. He wants to change the way you look. He wants to change where you hang out. He wants to change your identity. He wants to give you a new name. Isn't that what it says in Revelations? I will write on them a new name, the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. The redeemed have a new name, one name, and it's the name of, his, of God and of the city of God because the true church is Christ. It is the body of Jesus Christ. It's the name of Yeshua which is Yahweh becomes salvation and it's the name of the city of of our God. Amen. And if you want to lose your identity in this world, it's because you see that nothing but condemnation and heartache awaits all the identities and autonomies that this world peddles. It's an illusion. It's a lie. They promise them freedom, but while they themselves are slaves to corruption. Amen. But by what a man is overcome, by that he is enslaved. Amen. You say, God... I want my life to be hidden. I want my life to be hidden. I want somebody to come in 10 years and say, where's that guy I used to know? Where's Levi? He was a great guy to hang out with. I don't see him. I thought I'd recognize him because he's about seven feet tall, but I don't see him anywhere. No, that's not him. That's, that can't be him. Have you ever heard people talk about converted Christians like that? When my mom was just 19 years old, she wasn't a believer until she had an encounter with the Holy Spirit. And that same night, she was filled with God's Spirit, spoke in tongues for the first time, having never heard of it. She was baptized in the name of Yeshua that very night, Jesus, she was baptized in Jesus' name that night. And she, she, she had committed to the course of change but she went to a church, I can't remember where, but somewhere in Texas, it may have been Longview, but she went to a church, and somebody in that church, a leader in that church said, you see that young lady? Just look at her. There's no chance. There's no chance that she's gonna make it. And about a year and a half later, she, was, she and my dad were in that same church. And that minister was dumbfounded There was a revival. I believe 86 people got the Holy Ghost and that minister was dumbfounded. He could not believe that she was the woman that he had seen a year and a half before that he was so sure wouldn't make it. But what he didn't have enough appreciation for is she had committed to the process of change and she wasn't gonna stay the same. She was unrecognizable as the person who everyone was sure wasn't gonna make it. When you commit to this, when you make that pledge, baptism is a pledge. Baptism is a vow. You say, well, why can't I just stand up and give my pledge and say, Jesus, I want you to be Lord of my life. Why do I have to make it in water? Because it's a demonstrative vow. It's a vow that you demonstrate even while you're making it. You have died in repentance to the reign of sin. And you want to demonstrate before God that you are putting your old man into a watery grave. Sprinkling on your hand and sprinkling on your forehead is not baptism. The word baptism, baptizo, means to dunk, to immerse, It's what they did when they changed the color of cloth. They dyed it, soaked it in a bucket until it was completely changed in its color and substance and unrecognizable as the same thing. When you are immersed and plunged beneath that water, you are demonstrating to God and saying, let my old man be buried under the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. His sacrifice is the only thing that can save you. His sacrifice is the only thing that can atone for your sins. He was the sinless lamb. He was the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Amen. But how do you get under that sacrifice? Paul told us you're united with him through death. You die in repentance and then you lose your identity. He says, come unto me. And you say, I'm coming. He says, I'll give you my name. And you say, I'll take it. I'll do whatever I can, Lord. I want, to, I want to be done with that old man. I don't want its opinions. I don't want its perspectives. I don't want its smart mouth. I don't want its old circle of friends. I don't want anything about it. I want to be new, Jesus. Plunge me beneath your flood. Put me under your your blood. Cover me. Don't put the blood of a lamb on my doorpost. Put the blood of the only sinless lamb on my doorpost. Put the blood of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. He says in Acts 2.38, repent and let every one of you be baptized into the name of Jesus Christ. And somebody will say, I thought we're supposed to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You are. But what is that name? Father's not a, son, Father's not a name. Son's not a name. Holy Spirit's not a name. What's the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? what did he say in in Matthew 28, 19? Listen to his pronouns. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to us. Is that what he said? No, he said all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Do you hear the singular pronoun? All of it has been given to me. Therefore, go ye into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in, now listen to the the grammar, the name, not the names, but the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And lo, we are with you always, Is that what he said? No, he said, lo, I am with you always. Because 800 years before, Isaiah anointed by the power of the Holy Spirit prophesied and said unto us a child is born a son is given and his name shall be called wonderful counselor mighty God everlasting father prince of peace and of the increase of his government and peace there will be no no end that's what Jesus was saying when you discover whose name is the name of the father son and Holy Spirit go and baptize in that name and There'll be no end to my kingdom. I'm going to be with you always, even to the end of the age. And so that's what Peter said. He said, repent and let every one of you be baptized into the name. The grammar really is into the name. That means you're immersed into the identity. And somebody who says, well, I was baptized, but they didn't use the name. What? Have you ever heard of an identity that didn't include a name? I've just gone through a lot of gates On this trip, we went in all continents, but we went through a lot of gates. And you know how you get through gates? You show ID. And if you're on a good list, you get to go through. And if you're on a bad list, you don't. You better hope you're not on the bad list. But when you show that ID, what is that ID? Oh, it's a picture of you. But long before there were pictures on passports, there've always been names. The name is the articulated essence of God. Moses wanted God's presence to go with him. He said, give me your name. What name should I give? And he said, I am Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There is power in the name. The name evokes the presence of the one. That's why when the essence of a person changes, when the heart of a person changes, the name has to change also. When Jacob's heart really goes through a big change, his name has to change because the name correlates to the heart, to the essence. If you want the heart and essence of God, you've got to use his name. You've got to understand that his name has been given to us as the invocation of his presence and power. Remember what he says in Acts 4.12? They told him, don't preach anymore in this man's name. why did they want him preaching in his name he said you're going to bring this man's blood on us I don't want to make too much of that most people do but he goes on and he says there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men whereby we must be saved we must be saved by that name That name is what he left with us. That name and the presence that it invokes. So when you baptize, don't obscure it. Don't say, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's parroting what he says. That's copying. It's not obeying. Say, I now baptize you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Hebrew, Yeshua HaMashiach, for the remission of all of your sins. And you're saying, we're putting this name on you. God is writing on you a new name, the name of our God and the name of the city of our God. And those waters are judgment waters. The man, the old man, the old you that you died to in repentance is staying under that judgment of those those baptism waters because it says, cursed is anyone who hangs upon a tree. But you put your old man under the, under the cross of Christ. That means you called the judgment of God down on your old man. Oh, God, don't let me pull up my old man. Don't let me start to live that life that I called the judgment of the cross down upon. Oh, God, if I start to, please help me to put him back under the blood, back under those waters of commitment and keep him there, amen, so that I might be raised in newness of life. So baptism is for people who are not still owned by this world because the world is perishing away and all the works of it are going to be burned with fire. If you are in love with this world, then you are not in love with God. If any man loves the world or the things of the world, the love of the Father is not in him. But he says to you, Come out and be separate, says the Lord, and I will be your father. Separation precedes adoption. You cannot have oneness with God without having separation from this world that he is so against and that is under judgment. We want to fit into this world. We want to look like the world. We want to talk like the world. We want to act like the world. Well, then receive the salvation of the world. But some of us are wanting to be part of something called a church. The word in Greek is ekklesia, meaning the call out ones. We're wanting to leave this world. We're not infatuated. We're wanting to get inside the ark of God and be saved through baptism, which is our commitment to keep Jesus as our only identity, to keep him as our only Lord to have him and none other because there's no other name under heaven that we can be saved by. Are you in love with the world? Then accept the salvation that the world offers because you can be sure it offers you one. But if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. If you're one of these Christians who feels like, I just really like what I feel and everything, but I just don't know if I want to be that different. Well, I understand. Stick with the world. But don't change your label and pretend that the love of the Father is in you. If you're ashamed of him and his words in this perverse generation, he will be ashamed of you when he comes with his holy angels. I just want to tell him, God, when I get to the gates, I'm not going to show my passport. I want to show Jesus. I want him to say, where's Ossie? He's nowhere. For him to live is Christ, and to die is truly gain. His life is hid with God in Christ. I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price. That's why I want to glorify God with my body. We say we want to be set free in Christ, and yes, we do. But what kind of Freedom. We want freedom from sin and slavery to righteousness. That's what Paul said in Romans 6:16. 6, Remember what he says? He says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives. It does not say that he set free a host of captives. He says he led captive a host of captives. You've had many lords. You've had many identities. You like to think of your identity right now as something you created, but it's a lie. You've learned it from the television. You've learned it from the books. You've learned it from the the billboards and the posters. The identity that all the Christians have today is very different than the identity they had 100 years ago. Is it because Christ changed? If we are his body, why does his identity keep changing? No, it's because they're in love with the world and the things of the world. And they say, God, get set me free. But he doesn't offer to set you free only. He says, I want you to move from the custody of those other gods to the custody of Jesus Christ. What he's offering you is a prisoner exchange. And he says, if you'll become my servant, I'll make you a son. If you'll take my yoke upon you, You'll never regret it, because I love you so much I died to set you free. But it's gonna be the transgression of your will and your identity and your autonomy. So don't you dare get baptized if you wanna be an original, independent you. Only get baptized if you wanna get hidden. Only get baptized if you wanna get a new name, a new identity. Only get baptized if you wanna get in Christ. Only get baptized if you fall in love with Jesus and what he's done for you and you want to meet him at the wedding altar and make a vow with your actions. As you bend under that water, you want to say, I'll never leave you or forsake you for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, until death are we united. I'm with you, Lord. You are mine. I am yours. I belong to you. I'm not my own. Thank you, Jesus. I want your name, Jesus. Bring it down upon me, your identity, your righteous character, your Holy Spirit. Change me, not through some hair dye and Some label changes, but change me from the inside out. Oh God, I don't care what the world says I look like. I don't care what the world says I think like. I don't care what label they put on me. I want to belong to Jesus and Jesus only. I want to be hidden from the flesh and all its opinions. I want to have no identity except the identity of the only saved man, Jesus Christ the righteous, amen.